Amen. All right, so Revelation chapter 2, verse 12. We're on our third church in our journey of the seven churches. Uh, this is the church in Pergamum or Pergamos. Um, this church has a specific uh, locale that it is in um, that created some unique challenges for, for this church. Um, they were in a, uh, in a place that was... Uh, Ephesus, if we could compare it to U.S. cities, Ephesus would have been like New York City, and uh, Pergamum would have been like Washington, D.C. Yikes, right? Drain the swamp. Um, and so they had a unique um, place in, in history. They had a unique um, place in, in geography, and in, in, in each city has a unique struggle with it. It has a unique vibe to it. You ever been to a city and it have just this feeling you got or like, man, this just feels weird. Or you ever been to a city and you got a good feeling. Every city has something about it that uh, adds unique positive things but also adds unique challenges uh, as well. And the cities that we live in, we're not unscathed, right? The city that we live in leaves some kind of a mark, leaves some kind of an indelible imprint upon us. If you don't think where you live matters, if you ever talk to somebody that doesn't have an accent, and then you come from Arkansas to somewhere up north, they know that you're not from around here, right? It affects how we eat. It affects how we talk. I remember my wife, the first time I called her on the phone, we were messaging each other at first. We were just starting to talk. And she said, why don't you call me? So I said, okay. So I called her, and she goes, man, you sound country. That was the first thing she said. I said, yeah, I'm from Arkansas. <laughs> How did you want me to sound, right? I'm Arkansas. Uh, so where we live and in, in the, in the surroundings that we are in, it always, it's going to affect us. It influences how we worship, right? Um, you ever been to church in the northeast of the nation? It's different, okay? It's different. You start shouting up there, they put you in a loony bin. Uh, it's just different. Every place has a different, uh, different bearing. I remember my dad was working in Oregon for a large portion of uh, my teen years, and I'd go up and see him on the summer, and just to hear the, just it's just it's like you went into a different world when you go to Oregon. And just the way people talked, and there was one guy that my dad worked with, that, that big old guy had a really thick accent, and they'd go to the bank, and these girls would be like, where are you from? And he would say, I'm from L.A. And say, L.A.? He said, yeah, lower Arkansas. <laughs> uh, it, it leaves a mark. And so these uh, Pergamum, these people living in Pergamum, this church here, had a unique um, situation, unique challenges that were going on. And here's how unique they are. This is only the second city in the seven letters to the seven churches. This is only the second city where God isn't making a, as big of a point of, I know your deeds or I know your works. In this letter, he says, I know where you live. So if Jesus says, I know where you dwell, it's going to be a pretty tough place, pretty tough place to live. And so anytime there is, like this was the provincial capital of Asia, this was the, the, the city center of, of government for that region, 
And the demonic realm is attracted to structures of power in the earth. The demonic realm will look for places in which they can infiltrate and influence people to enforce their will upon the earth. They use the power structures of men in order to, to gain their will. So this city, being a governmental hub, attracted all kinds of spiritual influences. All kinds of spiritual influences. And uh, not only that, there were several different cults that were around in this city as well. There was an imperial cult. This was the oldest city in Asia as well. It was a place of learning. They boasted one of the biggest libraries in the ancient world. They also, in 29 BC, erected a temple to Augustus Caesar and began to worship um, emperor worship. And that becomes the counterculture movement that was Christianity, the first tagline or the first line of which Christians used to kind of be their mantra or their, um, their advertisement was Jesus is Lord. The reason why that came about is because there was a day uh, in the Roman Empire that it was called the Lord's Day to where they made everybody in the, each town go to the bust of Caesar, bow a knee, and say, Caesar is Lord, or Kaiser Curios. So the real litmus is if you were serving God was, were you going to bow a knee to Caesar, or were you going to bow a knee to Jesus? And so Jesus is Lord becomes the counter-cultural mantra of a Christian church that, mind you, had no political influence. They had just gotten started, a fledgling group of people. They weren't the people of influence. Everything in the empire oppressed and oppressed and, and, and came down on them and put them in positions where they felt powerless, where they felt like they didn't have a voice. So Jesus is coming into this major political city, and he's coming to a church who feels like they're surrounded by pagan worship. There's all kinds of cults. There's a cult to Caesar. There's a cult to, to Zeus. There's a temple for this other god named Asclepius. Um, which was a healing deity. There's all this pagan worship. Then there's this governmental system that is not protecting and is not honoring God. And here they are smack dab in the middle of this place trying to be faithful to the Lord and trying to walk this thing out in a way that is glorifying God. People would journey to this city, Pergamos, because this city was a city of healing. The pagan cult that they had there to this god named Asclepius, uh, where you've probably seen this in, in, as a symbol for the medical world. I think I've got a picture of it. It's a snake wrapped around a staff. Have you all seen this? Okay, this goes back to, to Greek culture. This is, this is Asclepius. This is what his symbol was. And there's some different thoughts of how, we, how they got this symbol. But the, the statue of Asclepius was a was a kind-bearded man who carried a staff uh, with a snake wrapped around it. The staff represented him being an itinerant healer. Why the snake? Uh, there's some different views. One view is that they found in a papyrus in 1500 B.C. was the fact that uh, apparently people were getting these worms. Okay, They were getting worms, and so people had figured out if they would make an incision into somebody... 
and then find the worm and they slowly wrapped it around a stick, the worm would come loose and they could get it from the body of that person. So then they started making this as an advertisement. Say, we can cure what ails you and get the worms out, right? So this becomes one theory of how they got this, how they got this name. Probably more likely is that the snake became a symbol of rejuvenation and rebirth. Number one, the snake had venom which could kill you, but the venom could also be used in ways of healing. Also, a snake would shed, right? So it was like something that could be reborn or be rejuvenated. And so so this became the symbol uh, in that temple dedicated to this god Asclepius. There were snakes uh, squirming around all over the temple floor. I'm sorry, but if I'm going to get healed... I'm not going to a place with snakes crawling all over the floor, right? It's crazy. It's crazy. But, you know, back then, that's why we're trying to get a first century mindset here because it ain't our mindset, right? It isn't our mindset. We've got to know what this ancient people were thinking. So this was a place of healing where you could come and be healed. Oddly enough, the place that is the governmental seat of Asia is also the place most concerned about health care. Because how do you control people? Laws and become the one that will take care of them. See, it's all just repackaged in a different, different deal. This is old stuff. We can't, we can't think our day is so unique. God's still God. He's still on the throne. So they had all these things that they were, that they were dealing with. And... Well, let's just dive in. Revelation chapter 2, verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Now, immediately, um, Jesus is coming out. And when we read this at first, we probably could maybe be a little bit frightened, right? Because here's Jesus has a two-edged sword. But these words weren't written to threaten. They were written to encourage. Because they had been so used to the Roman sword being pointed at them that they needed to understand that Jesus has a sword and has a power that's greater than the threats that they were experiencing in that day and time. So this would have been an encouragement in this ultra-pagan world with all these pressures around them with, uh, with, as we'll read, the first recorded... um, martyrdom in these seven churches is in is in the next few verses and so they would have been under extreme pressure so so knowing that jesus that there was a power and a protector above what seemed to be turned against them in the governmental powers that this was also uh, this would have been a great encouragement remember in revelation chapter one where john is um he hears a trumpet behind him and he hears here's a voice And he turns around, and it's Jesus. And Jesus has hair white as wool and eyes of fire, a sword in his mouth. He's got this glorious vestige, and he's got bronze feet. And he's coming towards John, and he just and John just falls down, uh, scared to death. And the the picture there is a picture of 
in Daniel 2 where we have the uh, picture, the vision that Daniel sees of an image with the golden head, right? And then each section as it gets to the bottom is a, is a, is a picture of a less and less glorious and a less and less powerful kingdom. And when we get to the last one with ten, whole, ten toes, which is a picture of Rome with a, the city of, on ten hills and and, and different things of that nature. But then we read about a, a rock that is rolling down a hill that crushes the statue. So this picture of Jesus with the hair wide as wool, the eyes of fire, the, the tongue, and it goes all the way down to the bronze feet, which would have pictured strength and would have pictured, uh, uh, would have pictured eternal and a living thing. So we have Daniel picturing the empires of the world as a statue, something that's not alive, that's going to be crushed. And then we have John seeing the kingdom of God that is coming to the earth, that is alive and that is an actual person, that is Jesus. And when he sees this person, he falls to his face and he's scared to death because he's never seen something so glorious. But Jesus comes to him in Revelation 1 and puts his hand on his back. And what does he say? Do not be afraid. See, Jesus isn't against them with a sword in his mouth. He is for them. And you need to get a hold of that in your life. I don't care what is coming against you. I don't care what has stacked itself against you to say, this is that and that's, and this person is saying this and that. Whatever it might be, God is for you, and you don't need anybody else to have your back if God's got your back. And so this is what Jesus is communicating to this church. I'm the one with the two-edged sword. I'm the one with the real power in the earth. And if you'll press into me, this earthly kingdom that has postured itself against you will not be able to stand. Amen. Amen. I got a shout in a Baptist church. Oh. Next verse. I know where you dwell. Right? Get this. Where Satan's throne is. What a place. How would you like that tagline for your city? Welcome to Hot Springs. Where Satan dwells. <laughs> right? <laughs> This is probably alluding to the Roman powers that be, governmental systems, the different pagan and demonic influences from all the worship activity that was there that was false. But Jesus says this is the place where Satan has his throne. And I think sometimes when we think of Satan, we think of the scary guy with horns, right? And like a pitchfork. Or we get a picture of these. Do you know what Satanism is? Satanism is this. I worship myself above God. Like it's not this scary thing where there's blood sacrifices. And if you've got a blonde kid with blue eyes, then be, be scared. It's got nothing to do with any of that. The heart of it is I can operate my life without God and his instructions. Like that's what Satanism is. Even Satanists that worship, they don't worship Satan, they worship self. It's the idea that somebody stood against God and said, I'm doing it my way, and that's what they're worshiping. 
and we turned into this scary Halloween thing. I'm telling you, it's in the pews. It's people that say God says go this way, but I'm going this way. It's that, that is what is satanic at heart. So oddly enough, a governmental system that tries to create uh, ways to heal people and do things without the one true God, that becomes the place where Satan dwells. We've run God out of every entity that is possibly could be in the earth and then wonder why everything's wrong. It's us operating in self saying, we'll call the faith in when a tragedy happens or we'll call the faith in the next time whatever happens. But at the heart of it, it's I can operate without God and his instructions. That's what being a Satanist really is. I know you don't believe me, but I'm going to have to give you some scripture on it. Matthew 16. Jesus is telling people after Peter gets the revelation, who do men say that I am? Some say Jeremiah, some say. He says, who do you say I am? You're Christ, you're son of the living God. He said, blessed are you, Peter, because nobody could have told you that. You got that revelation from the Father. The very next few verses, he's telling Jesus, Quit telling people that you're going to have to be crucified and die. Quit telling people that you're going to have to be crucified. And Jesus says, get behind me, Peter. Get behind me, Satan, for you don't even understand the things of God. That he wasn't drawing him in to worship a goat or do some blood sacrifice. The heart of it was, I'll dictate the plans of my life and God, you can't tell me what to do. That at its core is satanic. And so here is this city and this structure where Satan dwells. Where they're trying to do life to do it without God, that's what is going on here. You want to know where Satan dwells? Where people do life without Jesus. That's where Satan lives. That's where he's at. That's why he can be in the church right under our nose. Because we have just enough religion to mask us to think that we're moral enough to get by. And we've yet to hear the voice of God and obey and move towards his commands. It's at its heart rebellious. This is the place where Satan dwells, the place with the most political influence. But God's kingdom is counter. It's different than the kingdoms of the earth. It's different. The Sermon on the Mount, you ever read it? That's the preamble to the kingdom of God. The Constitution to the Kingdom of God, Sermon on the Mount. Somebody sues you for your tunic, sue them back and get double. Say, oh, do you want my cloak as well? Somebody slaps this cheek. You bow up on them and you let them know who's boss. Pat almost bowed up on me right then. Watch my back here. Where's Tom at? 
He said, here, you forgot one. He said, if you look at a woman with lust, Got quiet up in here. <laughs> well, tell me everybody got holy up in here all of a sudden on me. Be a lot of pirate. Look like pirate assembly of God in here if we was. <laughs> oh, Own it. So the idea is that's obviously hyperbole, right? Jesus isn't saying literally to do those things, right? Cut off your hand. and it. But he's trying to make a point. Be so detached from the world that you're not looking to the world to be your source and to pull you into some kind of whatever. He's saying that we ought to be so detached that our cloak doesn't matter as much as our relationship to God, that our stuff doesn't matter as much as me having Christian character and walking things out the right kind of way, that if a deal is not the right thing and it's not upstanding and it's affecting my witness, then I don't, I don't go there because I've got something greater that I'm connected to that I'm representing. And when people see me, they're going to see and get an idea of who God is. See, God's kingdom is counter. We win by love. We win by love. So we don't get in the mud. We maintain our Christian character. I like how George Bernard Shaw says it. I learned long ago never to wrestle with a pig. You get dirty and the pig likes it. <laughs> I'm taking the high road, man. <laughs> I'm taking the high road. <coughs> Plenty of pigs you can wrestle with. Yet you hold fast my name. Get this. I know where you live. Satan's throne. Yet you hold fast to my name. What a commendation. What a commendation for the place where Satan's throne is and they hold fast to his name. goes on to say, you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you. Here we got it again. It's repetition. Where Satan dwells. So despite the onslaught of the paganism that surrounded them at every turn, that's not the onslaught that John has in mind. It's an onslaught of persecution. So not only were they into these power structures that were trying to get them to bend and to fold and these religious cultic worship practices that were trying to get them to, to, be, to, to, to compromise and to, and, to, and to lay down their standards in which God had, had, was calling them into, they were also facing fierce persecution, which meant if I deny, if I don't deny Jesus or if I stay faithful, it could mean my life. These faithful believers would have had good reason, humanly speaking, to give up, to throw in the towel. God says, you're right in the middle of the devil's throne room. 
but yet you hold fast to my name. You're willing to be martyred. You're willing to lay down your life. So here the followers of the crucified one have learned from his experience that discipleship in his name and following him could mean death. Death at the hands of an empire that's unjust. I'm going to tell you something. Everything on this side of heaven is not going to be just. I hate it. Jesus is coming to abolish it. That's why he's the only king that can set up a kingdom because he's the only one with a pure enough heart to put forth justice. But everything on this side's just not going to be just. But you're still called to be faithful. Because if you're faithful, you get to enter into the spoils of the kingdom forever. This life is like this. And you're going to compromise this for eternity? You're going to get bent out of shape because of this? Grow up. Kingdom of God is waiting on us. You're going to rule and reign with Christ. Grow up. Grow up. To the maturity of Christ. Quit letting these little things snag you up and get your eyes off eternity and off the glory of God. There's too much good stuff coming to give up now. Can't give up. Can't give up. He said, This is where Satan's throne is, where Antipas' blood was spilled. Where was Jesus' blood spilled? Jerusalem. It seems that Satan loves to kill. And you would think the most religious place in human history, first century Jerusalem, God would have been able to be noticed when he showed up. Instead, it's the first place that kills him. Satan's throne. Where Jesus in Luke 4 has a wilderness testing. What does he offer him? Man, you can worship. Here, if you worship me, man, I'm going to give you everything. Seems that Satan's throne manifests itself in places the greatest moves of God are at stake. Because that's where the greatest opposition is. When the church does the opposite thing, when things get tough, we go around the other side of town. God's calling us to something greater. Jesus is crucified in his own hometown. <laughs> in the place that he had established to be the place where his presence would dwell forever. But here's the beauty. 
Bible says that if Satan would have known, if he would have crucified the Lord, that that was going to be his final defeat, he would have never done it. So God takes the worst injustice, the worst stuff, he takes it, and he uses it to sabotage the devil. So when you're faithful in times of great loss, it's a black eye to the devil every single time because it reminds them of how God worked out the cross, of how God worked out and is so far ahead. We always say in recovery meeting, he either is or he ain't. And if he is, your highest order is to obey what he says and be faithful. If he ain't, then go do your thing. He is or he ain't. I'm believing he is. I'm believing he is. Verse 14. We're getting close. I got an attitude tonight. You guys are going to just have to bear with me today. I'm growling tonight. I feel like a bull just... How many of us letting these little sins come up, stealing us from the glory of God? Come on. There's too much good stuff up there, head. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also, you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So here we got a couple different groups. God's saying, man, you guys are faithful. You're standing up in the face of martyrdom. But then there's, you've got some among you that are, that are, that are not faithful. He, he hearkens back to an Old Testament story in which the children of Israel were coming out of Egyptian bondage and coming into their promised land. And so the neighboring kings had heard about the, the glory of God and how it was on the children of Israel. And so they begin to get scared and think there's got to be a way to, to, to shift this tide the other way. And so this king by the name of Balak hires this some kind of man of God of some sort uh, to pronounce a curse on the children of Israel. And so he offers him money after, and then he turns it down. I can't bless, I can't curse what God's blessed. And he keeps going, he keeps going. Finally, he agrees to do it. And he's on the donkey. You probably remember this story. And then the donkey starts, uh, starts talking to him. right? He's on the donkey and the donkey won't go. And he's beating the donkey. And then the donkey turns around. And it's like, there's an angel up here going to kill you, man. <laughs> like, and he doesn't go, ah, talking donkey. He goes. He enters into dialogue with the donkey. It's kind of. So he goes and does it, and he goes to every side around the camp of Israel, and he tries to pronounce a curse on the children of Israel, and he can't do it. He said, I can't. I can only bless them. And he starts offering blessings. At the end of that whole deal, the king's furious. Here, I brought you here to curse, and all you're doing is blessing. He says, well, let me tell you a little secret about the weaknesses of men. Send in some prostitutes and send in some food offered to idols and they'll enter in. So that's what they do. And a curse enters in. 
Here was a people coming into this glorious place with the hand of God on them. And they fall victim to instant gratification and lust instead of waiting for the promised land and the promised place of God. Settling for a relationship. You know why God is against prostitutes and sexual morality? Do you know what I'm not, want to know why? Because prostitution is paying for love. Which is not love. And if you're in relationship sexually with someone outside of marriage, you're paying for love. You're paying for love. And it's not love. It's got you fooled. It's got you beat down. It's got you crawling on your knees. It's got you not yourself. Got you out of the will of God. But God is so merciful. And if you'll repent, He'll take you right back. If you'll quit trusting things that aren't for you, and trust God, He'll do it. He'll do it in your life. Bring you into fellowship with Him. He'll fix what's concerning you. Because God's for you, not against you. Verse 16. Here's our answer. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Get this. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you. Watch these pronouns. I will come to you soon and war against who? Them. So there's a portion that's faithful that he's coming to and a portion that's not faithful playing with sin and playing games with God that now he's at war against. He's beginning to come into the midst of the congregation and separate them by their faithfulness and their loyalty to Jesus Christ. He says, I'll come to you, but I'm going to war against those who is not faithful in the midst of persecution. If every time something tough comes and you go right back to your sin, what are you saying about the glory of God? What are you saying about Jesus? I love you enough to be honest with you, but what is that saying every time something tough happens and you can't handle it? You have to address that in your heart. You have to address why things knock me off course. It's because you've not made up your mind that Jesus is the greatest treasure that you could possibly have in the universe and you prefer things other than Him, but you love to name His name as if you are with Him in relationship. Verse 17, who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. 
See, the tradition was with the, with the Jews is that when Jeremiah, when the Jerusalem was destroyed and Jeremiah escaped to Egypt, that he took the Ark of the Covenant with him. And what was in the Ark of the Covenant? The tablets of Moses, Aaron's rod that budded, and then a pot of manna. So it was a picture of Jesus. It was Jesus, the, the one who fulfills the law, who's the perfect prototype of man. It was Jesus, the, the rod that budded, the dead thing that came to life, the resurrection of God. And it was the manna, the bread that came down from heaven that would be the sustenance of the people of God that would sustain them. And so they believed that at the end of the age in apocalyptic literature that Jeremiah was going to come back with the ark and open it up and they were all going to feast on that pot of manna that was inside of that ark. So he's staying true to the apocalyptic literature and the genre in which this is written in and he's saying that if you will hang in there, if you will come back, Jeremiah is going to basically bring back this, this Ark of the Covenant. He's going to open it up and you're going to get to partake in that. But a greater than Jeremiah is going to be the one that does that. It's going to be Jesus Christ is the one that's going to do that. That's why when Jesus said, who do men say that I am? What was one of the guesses? Elijah, who else? Jeremiah. They were looking for him to come back with the pot of manna. Said, no, it's going to be Jesus. But So he's saying, I'm going to come back and you're going to be a part of this feast that I'm going to set up in my messianic kingdom and you're going to be at the table with me feasting and eating of the bread that come down from heaven. He says that there, he would give us a a white stone with our name on it. There's a couple different views on this. Two most likely are this. The court systems in that time would, if you were guilty or innocent, if you were innocent, they would hand you a white stone with your name on it, and that meant that you were free to go. If you're guilty, you'd get a black stone with your name on it. So he's telling the people that even though you are losing in the court systems of the world... You stay faithful, the eternal cord is passing you a white stone and you're going to be forever with me in eternity. Also, there was tokens used as invitations to feasts and celebrations. Meaning that if they do not compromise, they'll get an invitation to the messianic feast of the kingdom of God when Jesus comes. Any joy that your compromise is giving you, you're not going to want to miss out on the kingdom of God in that party. You can't afford to miss out on heaven and what God is wanting to do when the kingdom of God comes manifest on this earth. You can't miss that. You've got to speak to any sin issue you're flirting with and thinking you're controlling. You're not controlling it. It's controlling you. It's making you do stuff out of character. And everybody sees it and everybody knows it. And you think that you're so good that you're hiding it. You're not hiding it. People know, man. Got to get rid of that compromise. Because God's got too much plan for you to go back now. You can't go back. There's too much good for you. You can't go back. You've got to stay faithful. Would you pray with me?